This morning we're continuing with the reading of God's Word in John, John chapter 19. And so as we read through this, I just want to remind you that as we go through the, the uh, steps of, of the ending of John's Gospel, we are timing this in such a way that we are actually a little ahead of what you would consider to be a normal Easter progression. What do I mean by that? Well, as Logan and I have talked and prayed, one of the things we realize is that many people come to Easter services out of some tradition, but they don't take time to think about and prepare their hearts for Easter, which is what the season of Lent is about. And so this morning, as we get into the Gospel of John, we're going to be reading from John's Gospel and his account of the crucifixion, and we're going to be talking about what the cross means and what it means to us, what it means to the world, and what difference does the cross make in our life. And so in light of that, as we continue reading this chapter, we've already started last week in talking about the crucifixion. Remember how Jesus was scourged and beaten for us and for our sins. He was hung upon the tree uh, that, that through his life-giving actions that somehow he might be able to impart life to us, meaning not just a good life, but that we might know God in a way that we did not know him before. And so in light of that, I want to invite you, would you stand with me as we read John chapter 19, verses 28 and following, and I invite you now to hear the Word of God. Later, knowing that everything had, been, had now been finished, and so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge to a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to, to Jesus' lips. By the way, Psalm 69 speaks of this. 69 speaks of this verse. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, it was the, the day of preparation preparation for the Passover. It was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be the special Sabbath. And so because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other man but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. Well, who is this man? It is John who's writing this gospel. Verse 36, these things happen so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of, of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, now Joseph was a, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. 
He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who's, who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a, a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about, about 75 pounds. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I grew up on products by, made by a company named Nabisco. You know what Nabisco is? Uh, it, it's one of those things. I, I remember Andy Griffith being on a commercial, and he would say, you all know who Andy Griffith is, by the way? Some of you don't know. Uh, for those of you who are younger, ask your parents. But anyway, uh, Andy would say, oh, there's nothing like a Ritz cracker, right? Nothing tastes better on a Ritz. And so as I grew up and I knew about crackers and cookies on a farm in South Carolina, it was always a treat to have something from Nabisco. But then, lo and behold, another company came and tried to take some of the market on crackers and cookies. It was called, of all things, Keebler. Now, what's a Keebler? Well, they, they tried to splash on the scene with a commercial that I still have fond memories of. It had an elf that says, their cookies are made with magic. Now, you can, imagine, you can imagine for a kid how exciting that would be to have some of those magic cookies that came from the, from the A&P store. Don't, if y'all don't know what an A&P store is, that's okay, too. But it was like a Kroger or a Harris Teeter. And, and more importantly, those cookies, as they came home, they were magically delicious. But here's, a, here's something that over time didn't make a, didn't make a dent the adults didn't like the word magic because we were Christians and magic was something Christians didn't talk about because it was kin to the devil. And so Keebler had to change the slogan in the South. They changed it, believe it or not, they changed it to these cookies are indescribably delicious. <laughs> indescribably delicious. Don't you love that? Yeah. They're magically delicious to indescribably delicious. Ever had something that was indescribable? You ever had a moment in life where you wanted to try to explain to someone what it is that you understood or experienced or desired, and it was, it was impossible to explain it? Well, that's what the cross is. The cross is something that has never happened before, and it's never happened since, and it's indescribably glorious, indescribably glorious. And so the words we read this morning that come from John's gospel really talk about the indescribable glory of God for you, for you. This indescribable act that God has accomplished on your behalf, and unfortunately, the cross has become a trinket, a token, 
You even see it worn by people who don't even understand it anymore. It is simply a jewelry that's adorned around people's necks or hanging from their ears. And unfortunately, if they only knew the indescribable glory of the cross, they would never, ever, ever live the way they're living. Or at least they would endeavor not to. When those words, it is finished, are spoken by Jesus, when he, when he decides that, that finally the torment that he is going through is over, please notice how John records this for us. It was at that time that John says that Jesus gave up his life. He wasn't taken from him. That he chose to give up his life. That it was the end of what he and I and you would know as existence in this form in this day. I remember talking to Mark Snoddy and I've also talked to Jenny Snotty. I don't know what it is about people when they get older. I'm beginning to understand in some ways. But Mark told me a long time ago when he was going through congestive heart failure and circulatory problems. And he was dealing with all kinds of physical ailments that just could not be sustained anymore. And he said, I'm ready to die. And I said, okay, I understand. He says, I know who I believe in. I know where I'm going. I'm ready. I'm tired. I'm ready to die. What a blessing that must be because we love and cling to life so strongly. But a week went by, a month went by, half a year went by. And I went by to see Mark and he looked at me and he said, you know, this dying is hard work. <laughs> and I just thought, isn't that curious? Because, because you and I have no control over death. Jesus did. He gave up his life. Now, how could he do that? Well, you remember John's gospel says that on the right and the left were two criminals who were crucified with him. On the right and the left. And so when we look at the cross, we have sanitized it in such a way in our modern era that we forget that this was an electric chair. That this was a table where people were inoculated with a drug to poison them, to kill them. This was the normal way you got rid of criminals. And the Romans used it immensely successful to drive fear into the hearts of people who would break the law. And anyone who was on a cross, hanging there, most likely deserved it. And they were condemned by it. And they were displayed as an example to the rest of the community. This is what happens to you when you mess with Rome's law. And so you would think, well, Jesus had no chance. Oh, no. Oh, no. John wants us to understand that when Jesus uttered the words, it is finished, it was not out of a sense of failure it was not out of a sense that Jesus had somehow not carried out the will of God. No, far from it. It was an amazing thing to say that it is finished because in doing so, Jesus was actually quoting the very purpose of his coming. You'll find it in chapter 4 of John's gospel. Chapter 4, verse 34, he said to the disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What work? 
the work that Christ came to accomplish for you. Now you think of this. You take a step back. If we can't control life, and Jesus did, he chose to give up his life. If he came to accomplish the will of the Father, which was the Father's work for him to accomplish, he went to the cross knowing it was the will of God to do so. The most amazing thing is at that point that Jesus is hanging on the cross and realizes, nope, and has orchestrated that now is the time complete the work of God. I don't know if the next time, last time you completed anything and felt good. I, I love woodworking, and I want you to know I, I work very hard to make things, but I, I tell you, every time I get to a place where I make something, I can always find the mistakes in it. Can, are you like that? I know some of you gardeners are like that. You have this dream about this garden, and you have all these flowers and the bushes, and everything's trimmed, and, and you have this picture in your mind of what this garden's going to look like. So you get out there, and you pull weeds, and you labor, and trim, and plant, and it always turns out the way you expected, right? No. I was talking with my daughter this past week. I don't know why we do this to ourselves. Uh, it's amazing how planning for a wedding, people get so wound up, right? And, and what's the word? Everything has to be. There it is. Can, can, I, can, I, can I just relieve some of your anxiety this morning? Repeat these words. There is no perfection. Then why do you try for it? Because there is a perfect God and a perfect Savior who has done a perfect work that you could not do for you. Isn't that glorious? And so when we look at this passage, we look at this point where Jesus says it is finished. What is he talking about finishing? It's called atonement. It's the means of being at one with God. What separates us from God are sins, not just actions, not just things we've done. It is a nature that each of us have that rebels against God, is selfish. It always seeks ourselves and not God. This nature that's in us, God has come to save us from, to deliver us from its dominating power. Let me tell you, you see people and you cluck your tongue and you shake your head at people you see walking around our country and they don't seem to be living a godly life. It's not because just that they are choosing to sin. It's because they don't have an atonement with God. Do you hear me? They are not at one with God. They are not with God. They are against him. They want to live their life the way they decide to. And in doing so, they reject God and his law and his life. And so when you and I think about atonement, this is the thing that you and I know is true. What does the Bible say? Before we ever loved God, what did God do? By sending his son, Jesus, into the world. So before you ever thought about God, God was thinking of you. Some of you think, well, he should think of me. I'm a really wonderful person. You, you, you got it wrong. You're not. 
That's why the cross is such a horrible stumbling place for people. Because no one can really understand the depth of the cross until they understand the depth of their sin. Of how far short they come in living out what God expects of those he has created. Well, why, why is this so important? Well, the church has tried to express this truth in ways that, that really help the world to understand what this cross means to us. And so in light of that, one of the things that, that has happened over time is there have been very theories about what Jesus did on the cross when he said it is finished. There have been ways of trying to explain it. And, and there have been a number of explanations given for the cross. The first that I, I and I won't go, there are like 12. Uh, how, what time is it? I, I won't go through all of them, I promise. But here's some examples. There is one that there's this ransom from Satan theory. Well, what is that? Well, according to this view, we were captive to Satan because of sin. We were under his dominion. And so Christ on the cross was offered to Satan as a ransom for, for our souls. For those, and for those who believe in Christ, we are bought with a price. And so Satan accepts that transaction but could not hold Jesus because he never sinned. And so this particular explanation of the cross is that, that basically it involves God in a rather shady transaction. What, what do I mean? Well, God has to give up something to get us back. As if the devil has some power over God. Well, that, that, that didn't really fit the scriptures. It, there is some truth to it. The Bible says we were delivered from the dominion of sin and from the power of the, of the evil one in the air. That is, there's a truth to that, but it doesn't fit the whole explanation of it. The, the second is the recapitulation theory. Oh, I love this one. You've got you to gotta hear this. It, this view suggests that even as Adam introduced sin into the world, remember as Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered the world and it spread to all humanity, so too Christ came and he was obedient. He was an example for us. He, he became that example of obedience in a way that Adam was the example of how not to do it. Jesus is the example of how to do it. And so Jesus becomes our example. Well, there's some truth to that. But can you copy Jesus perfectly? No. Another one is satisfaction. Well, what is that about? Well, it's, it's the idea that the cross means for us, and by the way, if you grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition, you may, sound, you may find this to be very familiar, but the, the theory of satisfaction is that when we sinned, we dishonored God, that God's honor has been violated and offended by us. That we withheld from God what he deserves. And so therefore, because God was violated by our activity, Christ has come and lived the perfect obedient life before God. And thereby, by doing that, he offers on our behalf what he, we could not do or what we didn't do. He offers to God our goodness, or I should say his goodness, and therefore we get the credit for it. The only problem with this theory is that Christ being the second person of the Trinity, he needed no reward, and he so and so he he passed his reward on to us as 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 forgiveness of sins, 
But the problem is that the shortcoming of the, this, cro uh, the short, easy for you to say, the shortcoming of this view of the cross is that it puts the emphasis of the honor or on the honor of God rather than on his justice and his holiness. You see, God must judge sin for what it is. And what is the wages of sin? Yeah. Then there's the moral. This is a this is a one that I unfortunately is very, very American, very modern. This is the way most people who attend church think about the cross. And it is the moral the moral influence of the of the cross, and that is, uh, it is uh, there is there is nothing in the character of God, according to this view, that requires justice or satisfaction. That the cross is simply God's identifying with and suffering with sinful human humans. This demonstration of God's love for and identification with us moves us in the heart. That is rebellious to suddenly say, ah, oh, I'm just living a horrible life. I need to love God and obey him. And so because of what Jesus did on the cross, I'm going to start living a good moral life. Can you? No. Then what really is the Bible talking about? The Bible's talking about under the cross what we call a vicarious substitutionary view a vicarious substitutionary view. What is that? That Jesus took our place and died, died our death, that he bore the punishment for our sins. Where do, we, where, where do we find scripture like this? Well, it says in Galatians 3, 13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It says in Hebrews, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And so when you and I think about the cross, the cross for us and its understanding of what God has done is that God gave a way for us to find forgiveness, not by our own ability, our own wisdom, our own insights, our own will, but that through the substitu substitutionary work of Christ on the cross where he paid for our sins on with, through his death on the tree, we now have atonement with God. We have a oneness with God, finally. Now, if you understand this, it will shake your world. Because many of you come to church because you think by coming to church, it makes you right with God. It won't. You must put your faith in what the cross is. That is that God, when he died on the cross, he died for you. I will never forget as a teenager going to a conference and hearing the gospel I, we had a faithful minister preaching in our church every Sunday. I can still hear a Warren Wardlaw's voice in my head preaching the gospel, but it was at that conference that suddenly the light dawned and I understood it. It was that Christ didn't die for the sins of the world. He died for me, for my sins. And when I turned to Christ and said, yes, Jesus, I not only understand it, I believe it. I trust in you alone, alone. In nothing can I bend, but to you and your cross I cling. The dawning realization of that became so powerful, it changed the direction of my life. I doubt very seriously I would have seen the age of 30 if Christ had not intervened in my life. 
And I dare say, if you are a Christian this morning, if Christ had not intervened in your life with that same revelation, you would not be who you are today in Christ. You could say amen at this point. Maybe some of you are not so sure. The cross is not something that you trust in. It's just a simple image that you've accepted to be true, but you've not put your trust in that. See, the meaning of the cross is really quite powerful because when you think about what Christ did on the cross and you begin to think through its motivation, its moving cause, the reason God allowed this or allowed it to happen was that it was his pleasure. The Bible says it was his pleasure to send Christ into the world to suffer for us. You say, wait a minute. How can we believe in that kind of God? Why would God cause suffering in the world? Haven't you heard that before? Well, let me tell you, suffering is in the world because of sin. Because the nature of sin penetrates every part of this human world. If you don't believe it, open your magazine or newspaper. Look at what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. You don't think that's a sin? Look what's happening to marriages, to people who are confused over their sexual orientations or their identity. You don't think that's sin? Sure it is. It's a denial of God and what he has created us to be. It's a denial of his truth. It's an insult to God. And we don't think of it that way, do we? I don't know if you've really plunged the depth of this truth, but when you and I sin, we don't sin just against each other. We sin against God. It is as if we have told God to go, excuse me, to go to hell. And when you look at your sin in that way, and you realize you have no ability to change it, then you understand why you need Jesus. The most amazing thing about the meaning of the cross is that it is, it is sometimes represented, this meaning of the cross, as, as a moving cause of, the, of God's atonement that Christ lays down his life because he sympathizes for us. No, 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 no. That somehow God in his anger, God is so angry at us that he, he was bent on destroying sinners. And so what happened? Christ had to intervene and step in on the stage and save sinners from the wrath of God. That's not it at all. No. Not at all. What what happened was God became man. And he took upon himself what we deserved. Hmm, I like that, don't you? The, the, The motivation of the cross and the work of the cross was a pleasure to God. When you, when you think deeply about this, it, it really begins to jar your, your heart. Imagine you're driving down the road and you, I don't know, you're looking at yourself. 
None of you do that, I'm sure. It's against the law in North Carolina. But you're looking at your cell phone and suddenly you, you glance up and you, you run over somebody because they were crossing the road. And you go before the judge and he says, I'm going to fine you a million dollars. And then the person who you ran over stands up and says, Your Honor, I'm here to pay the fine for what this man did. Better illustration. The judge who must carry out the law, who must sentence you, comes off the bench and chooses to pay the, the penalty himself. This is what God has done for you. You see, the motivation of the cross was God's love for the world. The second thing that's quite amazing is it's best to say that an atonement is rooted in his love and justice. What do I mean by that? That God's justice must be satisfied, but his love also must be amplified through that cross. That God could not have pardoned a sin. What, what, couldn't he? Couldn't God say, well, he'll forgive me. You hear that often, don't you? Well, God's a forgiving God. He'll forgive me. How? How will God forgive you? Well, I'll do better. No, no, you don't understand. You must come to the cross. You must come to that place where you acknowledge what you have done before the God who must judge you. And there Christ pays the penalty once and for all. It's, it's really quite powerful when you think of it. The most amazing thing is that it's not a motivation that, through, that comes from God's love or His great pleasure in, in sending His Son into the world. It has inherent features of redemption. What do I mean? The saving act of God, this work that God has done, it is truly amazing. It serves first to render satisfaction. Now get this, this is the hardest thing for Christians to hear. When you come to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord, you understand what he did for you on the cross and you accept your inability to save yourself or to be good in God's eyes. You are forgiven. And God remembers your sin no more. Do you believe that? That's the gospel. This inherent feature of redemption that God not only can accomplish our forgiveness, that he gives his forgiveness. Martin Luther, when he was wrestling with this, this means of grace that God had done through the cross, he would constantly go and confess his sins and confess his sins and confess his sins. He would, he would write down every sin he could ever think about confessing until finally one day as they, in that day, practiced confession, they'd go to a confession booth and they would just pour out their confessions to the, to the priest on the other side of the wall. And he kept pouring out his, his it, I did this, I did, I did that, I did this, I, I did that. Have you asked God to forgive you? Yes, but I did it, I did it. I did it. And, and, and as he was doing that, 
Finally, the monk on the other side of the screen opened it and said, Martin Luther, please go and do some vile sin and come and share it with me because I am sickly bored of the list that you are making. What was going on? He didn't believe he was forgiven. He didn't believe it. That's why he nailed the 95 or 39 theses on the doors because he came to understand the gospel that when we receive Christ, we are forgiven. Now, some of you might say, well, if that's the way, then why don't I receive Christ and then go out and live any way I want? You don't understand the, what did I say in the beginning of the sermon? The cookie from Keebler? Indescribable grace. The indescribable grace, when it takes hold of you, it causes you to not want to sin. It causes you to want to love God. You may not be perfect at it. You may not be successful at one day from the next, but it will never leave you that your motivation for living is to love God and understand Him more and to have a relationship with Him through Christ that is progressively wonderful, not based upon your goodness, but based upon Christ's forgiveness and His grace. Let me tell you, some of you are wrestling with sins right now and, and I'm not, I, I, I want to be careful because as a pastor, I have so many people that will come and talk to me about their sins. And I never betray a confidence, ever. When you talk to me about something, I don't even tell my wife what you talk to me about. But there are some of you who are wrestling with things because it has a grip on you because you cannot let it go. You do not believe that God is grips you and because of the shame of it it drives you back into that sin and the grace that God has that's indescribable is a grace that frees you from that this is what brings that last part of this wonderful work of Christ, that it served to render satisfaction to God, that it was a vicarious atonement. It was something that God did for me that I couldn't do for myself. It, here's the glory of this. It includes Christ's active and passive obedience. What do I mean by that? When Christ came, it wasn't like the Father had to say, okay, now, Jesus, I want you to do this. I know you won't like it. It's kind of like the kids who, uh, who remember the commercial? Let's give it to Mikey. He won't eat it. <laughs> remember? Remember? Let's give it to Mikey. What was the cereal? What was the cereal? Do you remember? Oh my goodness! You, some of you were alive back then. How about that? Let's give it to Mikey. He won't like it. It's good for you, right? So Mikey takes it. What does he do? He picks up the spoon. Hey, hey, hey! Mikey likes it. And then the other kids they fight over the rest of the box of the cereal, don't they? You know, that's exactly the experience of a Christian. That's exactly the experience of a Christian. The cross is not a place where we mourn 
It's a place where we enjoy God. It's a place where we understand what God has done for me. I couldn't do it myself. But many people think, oh, no, 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 no. No, if you follow Christ, you want. God looked to Christ and he said, okay, I want, I want you to carry out my will. What is that? Go to the cross. Remember the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden before he was crucified? If you don't think that he felt incredible suffering, emotional suffering facing the cross, go and read the account of where he was in the Mount of Olives and he was so overwhelmed with what God was asking him to do that he said, God, Father, not my will, but thy will. that is a parallel imagery of what it is for us as Christians to look at the cross. When we think about what God is asking us to do, he is asking us to trust him. And it's almost impossible for us. When we talk about Christ's active obedience, we're talking about the, the desire that Christ had to fulfill what God had accomplished or God was calling him to accomplish he observed the law where we could not. He kept the law of God perfectly. He was sinless, and yet he went to take upon himself a criminal's wrath, the wrath that belonged to a criminal who had violated that, that law. But it's a passive obedience in the sense that he suffered. He suffered in that he paid for the penalty, not of his sins, but the sins of others. Well, that leads us to our closing this morning. Then when Christ died on the cross, did he die for all sin? For whose sins did Jesus die? In other words, what people can stand before God as if they are now one with God? Who can make that claim? Who can say, I am forgiven. Can, can Adolf Hitler? Can Joseph Stalin? Can the murderer named BTK, who slaughtered hundreds of women? Who? You see, there's a there's a, 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 a tremendous teaching in the scriptures that many people find offensive. And there is this idea that when Christ died on the cross, his death was a universal activity. And so there are traditions, whether they're Roman Catholics or Lutherans or Arminians, where they believe and they think that the Bible teaches that Christ died for all sin. That Christ died for all sin, meaning every sin that's ever been committed, on, that Jesus paid for those sins. And so that kind of thinking has led in the church to people believing that because Christ has died for all sins, for everybody's sins, that everyone is going to heaven. Is that true? It's not. The most amazing thing about it is they think to themselves that... that uh, 
that the salvation that is offered through the death of Christ is offered by Christ, but the salvation is made possible for all by their acceptance of the cross. Meaning that their activity, their contribution, their willfulness has somehow made this possible. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says we were lost in our sins, unable to save ourselves, completely foreign and alien to God, and God, by His great mercy and power, raised us from the death of sin. No, in fact, when you go to the Scriptures and you look at them, who's who then are affected by this death on the cross? Who are the people that have the benefit of it? Who are the people that receive it? It is that Christ has suffered and died for who? For, amazingly, when the Bible says he died for his people, for his sheep, for his church. In Romans 8, 20, 32, it says for the elect. Well, who are the elect? Everyone who comes to put their faith in what Christ did on the cross for them. In Romans, it says that there is a book of life. Do you know what, whose names are written in the book of life? The elect. And so when you and I go out and share the gospel, we don't have to go out to try to convince people of anything. When you and I go out and talk about our faith in Christ, we're not there to manipulate people into Jesus. No, that's not it. Because anything we can talk someone into, they could talk themselves out of. But when the cross is represented and what Christ has done in their lives God, through the Holy Spirit, changes their hearts, not because of us, but because of him who is at work in them, and converts them and brings them to life in Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? Some of you are so worried about sharing the gospel, you think, oh man, I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to mess it up. I had to talk to someone who years ago told me, said, I, I just... I don't ever want to share the gospel again. I said, why? Because I didn't share it or I shared it in a way and, and no one gave their life to Christ and, and, and I feel like I failed God and, 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 and more than that, I just, I just can't change people's hearts. I said, that's it. You got it. Only God can. This is why Paul writes in Romans and says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? For it is the power of God given under heaven by which men and women must be saved. You've got a loved one in your family. You've got a loved one in your family who you want to be saved. It's not a matter of your will. It's a matter of the will of God and he desires. Well, then, yeah, doesn't the Bible say that God wants all people to be saved? Well, I mean, look at the passage like 1 Timothy 2, 5. It says, for there is, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. How about Titus 2, 11? For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Doesn't, doesn't God expect everyone to be saved? about Hebrews 2.9, but we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels, a little lower while now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that 
by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Well, that doesn't seem to match what we just said. It seems that God does want all people to be saved, but you don't understand. The context in those verses is not about all people, even those who don't repent. Because the process of coming to Christ is repentance and faith. What the context is, is that for those who do understand the cross and do repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of them will be saved. Isn't that glorious? Well, then what is the power of the cross for us? For sinners, for those who don't know Christ, it is the source of a new life, a new relationship they could not have with God outside of faith in Jesus Christ. And when they place their faith in Christ, they are born into a new relationship with God they did not have before. Do you know you have that this morning? When I go home, I'm always amazed at my family. I was the black sheep of the family. Do you all know that? I'm the one that became the preacher. And so when we get together as a family, they all kind of gather around, and you can see it coming. They kind of mumble. It's time for eating. So what do we do? We pray. We have to pray. We're Christians. We have to pray over our meal. So everybody looks to the preacher and says, Okay, Robert. Now what are they doing? They're not believing in Christ. They're believing that I have the ability to bless their food. Who does? God. Do you know that that's one of the hallmarks of our Reformed faith? The priesthood of all believers. That God, as a believer in Christ, hears your prayer just as intimately and clearly as he would hear mine or even, God willing, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. The cross means you have a relationship with God you could not have before. And for sinners, that's the good news. For we who believe, what does it mean? The cross, now that we're on this side of the cross, what does the cross mean for us? It means denial. It means denial. Denial of what? The sinful nature. Resisting it, fleeing it, running to Christ. Jesus said it most clearly in Matthew 16. He said, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose their life for me will You know the hardest part of preaching is when you come to a moment like this and you really have tried your hardest to explain the scriptures and you know you haven't done a good job. (laughs) And you just say, oh, help us. How do I end this sermon? And the only way I can end this sermon is by asking, as you approach this Easter, come to know God through Jesus Christ. Do you believe
need to forgive him. And do you walk in that assurance? This is the will of God. It is why Jesus spoke the words, it is finished. There's nothing we can do to add to our salvation or take away from it. It is God's work on our behalf. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Lord and our God, as we look to the cross and we begin to prepare for this Easter season, the, the real question is, God, help me to understand the cross in such ways that I, I fully immerse myself in its truth. When I, when I have doubts and fears, bring me back to the cross. When I have questions about your work, bring me back to the cross. When, when I struggle and, and maybe even fall into a sin and feel so filthy and dirty and unacceptable to you, bring me back to the cross. For it is there that you accomplished for us what we could not do for ourselves. You removed the stain of sin. It is tremendous that Paul writes in Romans 8, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. That when we run to your arms, you do not wag your finger or tell us that we haven't lived up to what you expected. Your arms are open. Your heart is full greet us with the biggest smile, the warmest embrace, because we now know you as our Father who art in heaven. And for this we give you thanks in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the people of God said together,